Hi there. Welcome to Just to be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by the Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. On this episode, we'll be going over everything coming out this weekend that's worth seeing in a theater or streaming from your couch, but we'll also revisit the 2011 Cannes Film Festival 10 years after the fact, and we'll chew on some of the latest movie news as well before finishing up with a discussion of literature that we would want to see adapted by the one and only Zack Snyder. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with contact info if you want to sound off in our inboxes or our Twitter DMs. Let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Well, welcome, guys. So we've got Bruce in Sioux City. Bruce can say hello. Hello. We've got Jared McNett in Mason City, Iowa. Real human being and a real hero. We'll have to clear that with uh, with the rights management people, I'd imagine. And you're Chris Lay. And I am the Chris one, Lay. the only, the one and only uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, you know, did you see hear the good news? We only have. 10 months until the next Oscars. Only 10 months till the next Oscars. Only 10 months. We have got to cram a lot of bad movies into a short period of time. Yep. Because, hey, is it March 27th? I think the date is they've set. So that means that actually this is more of an asterisk year than last year was, because that means that fewer films probably will be considered. And some of those ones that could have leaked over in one in the next year competition were considered for last year. So isn't that, isn't that charming? So we'll have two asterisk years in a row is what you're I saying. I think so. Yeah, so anybody who gets one, just know they're kind of not the real Oscars. <laughs> no, in the record books, they still count. They still count. Do they count? That's, yeah. This is the year to win then when it's like the competition isn't that stiff. I think we could do our, our short subject it's like you know you know how the like there are some movies you know last year that were number one at the box office with like a thousand dollars or whatever those will forever be uh number one at the box office for a weekend and nobody has to know that they only made like a couple thousand bucks that sounds very suspicious yeah but we've also got it's, it's a shorter window this year than they had last year but we're gonna have stuff that should have come out last year it's gonna be rubbing up against stuff that was already planned to be this year, stuff that was going to be in contention, like um, West Side Story and In the Heights. I mean, I don't know why I'm only thinking of musicals off the top of my head. Top Gun 2. Top Gun 2. Yes. Maverick Boogaloo. Right. But he will resist taking the Golden Globe. If it's there for Tom Cruise, he is, he's turning it up back. Imagine that he threw away the only awards he got. He got three Golden Globes and said, I'm turning them back. Tom, let's rethink this. Those are your only awards. And you should be upholding this bunch as much as you can. No, 
those, those are not his only awards. He has uh, he's won at least a few uh, from Scientology. <laughs> he probably won an MTV award in the eighties. Oh, probably one of those like best kiss or whatever. Yeah, they have. I, yeah. I would, I would, I'm not going to look it up because I don't really care that much, but I, I'm willing to bet he probably won one of those. So those are intact. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens with this year, but we've got now this week's new films that are coming out. And have you seen any of the new ones yet? I have not seen any of the new ones, but I know you have. I've seen Cruella. And um, I do think that Cruella tries way too hard. Cruella is the prequel to 101 Dalmatians. The live action version. The prequel we all needed. Right. Which 101 Dalmatians is the prequel to 102 Dalmatians. Which was a, re, a live action reboot of 101 Dalmatians animated. And you know what's so strange about all of this is it takes them too long to get that origin story of Cruella de Vil, who is called Estella in the movie. And really, do I need to do that? She's an orphan, Shades of Annie, um, who is going to get back at the woman who might be responsible for killing her mother. Wait, her name in the her name in the movie is Estella. Estella becomes Cruella at some point. Why can't she just be called Cruella? Why does she have to have a name that rhymes with Cruella? Because her mother named her and she loves her mother. And her mother was robbed of her necklace by a woman who could be the Baroness. You see how involved this is? There's way too much story for a movie that's really the cartoon was what, 60 minutes, 70 minutes? And this origin story. And do we need the origins of everything? Can I not really enjoy the origin story on my own? Well, I'm I'm of the opinion, and I think I've made this joke before, but at this point, if you're gonna do origin stories, uh, every single origin story movie should have, regardless of what the movie is, should have uh, Bruce Wayne's parents getting shot to death in an alleyway. If you're gonna just keep doing origin stories for everything, <laughs> just go with the origin story everyone knows, just throw that in there too. And the, the pearls are all scattered across the ground. Yeah. Yep. Or, I mean, I don't know. I, I really liked the way that they've done the new Spider-Man movies where they just don't even address the origin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I want them to keep moving. If you're going to do another whatever movie, just do it from that point. Assume we know what happened. We don't need to have it fill in the blanks. And like I say, it twists and turns way too much to try and get to the point where you get her being this evil Cruella who wants to make a coat out of dogs. Is it a movie where they're centering her as, as an anti-hero or is it something where they're taking one of the most notoriously evil Disney villains and actually trying to give her depth where you kind of go, oh, she's, she's, she's a misunderstood. <laughs> That's, it's just like Maleficent where they took that and you thought, wait a minute. She was just an old hag who turned into a dragon. And that's the same thing with this. She, I don't know why she's so evil. You know, she doesn't need to be. Uh, it's a Devil Wears Prada kind of interest thing where she is working for the Baroness. The Baroness is just like, you know, um, whatever her name was that Meryl Streep played in The Devil Wears Prada, who's mean to her assistant. Well, the assistant decides to get the best of her in this case by creating her own line of clothing that outdoes everything that the Baroness did. And then they become these two kind of battling designers. You see how, how long it takes to get to that? I have had a sufficient amount of caffeine today 
And even hearing that description, uh, it was hard for me to focus because I just really like, I, and I know this isn't going to be the worst like origin story that ever comes out. There's been so many of these at this point, but like, I'm, it's so hard for me to care or get excited about very few of these origin stories at this point. And like Disney is obviously the guiltiest party when it comes to these, but they're not the only ones. Who is sitting in their library, digging through all this old crap saying, here's one, here's one we can do. Let's do this one. Well, now they're doing the Willy Wonka one too. So, I mean, that's, and that's another one. No one cared. I, no one wanted that. I guarantee you, no one wanted a Willy Wonka origin story. If they were to go and actually continue to adapt the Roald Dahl books, stick to those as the the main structure for the plots, then I don't think that would necessarily be terrible because those books are insane. It's kind of in, in the same way that Disney glammed up the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. You know, the Roald Dahl books aren't nearly as graphic as that, but yeah, way darker than than the films I think uh, have ever really gotten close to. I've heard a lot of really good stuff about the soundtrack. Oh, there's too many songs, too many songs. They could easily cut a bunch of them. Uh, it's set in the 70s in London. And so you can imagine what you're getting, but you don't just get 70 songs. You get ones that go before the 70s. It's a lot of music, a lot of music. In fact, we'll never see this on broadcast TV. They won't get the rights to clear it. Um, so it'll be directly to streaming, I'm sure. That's it. But Emma Stone is interesting, but I don't think Emma Stone is at that point in her career where she has to take this kind of stuff. Um, she shouldn't be doing these kinds of roles. You know, she can get better. And um, some of the costuming is great. I it'll probably be nominated for best costumes because they're so over the top and, and wild. But beyond that, I, all I could see was this was two hours and like 15 minutes. That's long. That's a long period of time to sit through something that really was a kid's film. It's in that tier of Disney Plus content where you have to pay for it in addition to your Disney Plus subscription, correct? And I don't want to redeem any villains. I want them to be villains. There's no redemption necessary. She was going to make a coat out of dogs, for God's sakes. She saw them when they were puppies and immediately said, you know what I need to do is just peel that skin right off, <laughs> which is, I mean, just the worst. <laughs> but it played into a really good um, hand back in the day in the 60s, uh, where it scared the hell out of you if you were a kid. You thought, oh, my God, my puppy's going to be killed. So it's good. But anyway, we'll move on because that's that's a little too much. I think you have to be a real big fan to want to see it. And for the moments that you enjoy, there are not enough of them. Quiet Place 2 is coming, finally coming out after we've seen that trailer forever. And apparently, um, it kind of backs up a little bit. So you get a chance to see John Krasinski before John Krasinski disappeared. So this is a, a good version, potentially, of filling in some backstory. <laughs> kind of an origin story, but then it flashes forward to where they're trying to, the mom and her kids are trying to get out of this world, wherever they are, where a lot of other people are, are scared too. And, you know, I like what he does. I hope he doesn't get caught in this trap where that's all they think he can do. I would hope he would do some other kinds of films because he's, I think, very talented. And I don't think we need a quiet place three, even if they're talking about it. 
I think he has enough cachet that he doesn't have to worry about getting pigeonholed as only like a horror movie director, I don't think. Look at somebody like M. Night Shyamalan, where yeah. they wanted him to have all those kind, and I think it's happening to Jordan Peele too. And I don't want that to happen. I want them to do something way off the beam. Getting uh, like quote unquote stuck only doing horror movies worked out fine for others that are super talented with it, you know, like uh, Romero or whatever else. But um, yeah, I, I think Krasinski will be able to do other stuff. And I'm, I'm pretty excited for this because I really liked the first one a lot. It was a good uh, theatrical experience. Like the, there's a lot of elements in the movie that make it perfect for seeing in a theater. And so other than like, when I went and saw, you know, Godzilla versus uh, King Kong, or a little bit, I guess, too, with uh, Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk movie. This is going to be one of only a couple of movies I've been able to see since I've been back in theaters that I would have, you know, lost a little bit of something if I had only watched them at home on a smaller screen, I think. I think this is one, if you're going to make your first trip back, this is a good one to pick. Because that was part of the thrill was having that kind of silence and then the sound just stray sound. And you know how they can do it in theaters where it sounds like it's right behind you. And you think, oh, my God, I'm going to get eaten right now. So I think it's a good one. And then our third new film this week is Plan B. Plan B. Is that one that you had heard of before, Bruce? Yeah. Um, it's set in South Dakota, so it's near us. And that's um, kind of some interest. But it's, a, you know, it's very much in the book smart vein where, um, you know, kids are trying to kind of live their fullest before they become an adult. And this girl has sex and then she's trying to get birth control or the Plan B pill. And in South Dakota, they can do a lot of different things if you're asking for it. They could deny you at the pharmacy. So you can see where the comedy comes from. I think it does have um, real potential. Oddly enough, Plan B is also the name of Brad Pitt's production company. So don't think it's a Brad Pitt movie. This is a Plan B pill movie. And that is, it's a Hulu original. And the cast has got uh, Rachel Dratch and Jay Chandrasekhar and Edie Patterson. Well, Rachel Dratch, SNL alum, Debbie Downer, uh, Jay Chandrasekhar from Super Troopers. Yeah, it seems like it's got a lot of good vibes to it. It fits really well into the, the Hulu pattern with Pen15 and those kind of shows. Yeah, I think it works really well there. It sounds like a little bit of a different tone maybe than like uh, Palm Springs from last year, but uh Hulu could start really carving out a good niche of these, like of finding a home for these kind of comedies that don't really seem to show up that much in like actual box office releases anymore. Yeah, I think Bruce really hit it on hit the nail on the head when he used Booksmart as kind of a reference point for that. That's that's the definite vibe that I get for that. And then I just wanted to throw out there, it came out a couple of weeks ago, but St. Maud, which is uh, from A24, sort of a art house horror movie that should have come out over a year ago, but obviously didn't make the, the <laughs> its debut for obvious reasons. Um, kind of very similar to The Witch, if anybody uh, is into that. Same kind of weird religious creepiness uh, going on there. And if it's A24, you can expect that there's going to be some kind of past trauma in one of the characters' lives that they have to uh, oh, yes. reckon with in some way. Yes. I want to be kept alive by all means. I do not want to have somebody pulling the plug. I do not want to have somebody encourage the trip to the beyond. And so this scares the hell out of me. You want to discourage the trip to the beyond. Right. I do not. I will be holding the plug in the wall to make sure my life <laughs> force is still going. 
Uh, yeah, and that is uh, that, that hit Amazon Prime two weeks ago, and it'll be available for two more weeks if that sounds like it's your jam. It's Jared's. It's Jared's movie. His name is written all over it. Well, definitely, because, I mean, just last week, actually, on Friday, I went and saw uh, Spiral, and I was pretty happy with uh, that one. So I'll definitely check out St. Maud. I wasn't actually aware of this one until right now. And um, even though I was complaining about there being too many, you know, prequels and origin stories, I will always go see a horror movie from A24. So and speaking of, of horror movies, we've got uh, next week. Yes. Is uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which Very I, I still have not seen any of the films in this. Uh, You're kidding. I haven't. Yeah, I have not seen any of them. Oh, that old 70s couple that keeps kind of creeping around everybody. I, I still maintain, and I think I talked about it on an earlier episode, that the first one is one of the scariest movies, I think, of the 21st century, just in terms of how they uh, execute the scares and everything. And the two, I haven't seen any of the spinoffs, like the Annabelle movie or the Annabelle movies or the the Nun movie, but uh, the Conjuring movies, the first two were really, really effective, and I'm um, looking forward to this one. And you mentioned Spiral. These are... Um kind of tangentially related to James Wan, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. This is, yep. Uh, yeah, it's, been, it's a big month for James Wan. <laughs> it is. He finally gets released. Yeah. And then also we have uh, next week, uh, Samaritan, which is this very strange sounding new Sylvester Stallone movie uh, that should have been shooting all last year, but it got you know, bumped around because of COVID. Uh, and it is described as a dark new take on superhero movies, which is, you know, the world needs a lot of that right now because we don't have, that's a new territory for them, I guess. I guess somebody didn't see the pandemic coming, huh? Yeah, so check those out. One other I would recommend uh, checking out because I, I had a busy week last week of watching movies. I saw Spiral on Friday and then on Saturday, I actually saw uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, the new uh, Taylor Sheridan a movie with uh, Angelina Jolie, the uh, firefighting like action movie, not action in like the typical sense necessarily, but in like the Sicario, you know, Hell or High Water, Taylor Sheridan sort of way. And I don't think it's his best one that he's done, but I mean, I still watch anything he does and it's pretty enjoyable. And it had been a while since I'd seen Angelina Jolie in a movie in theaters that wasn't like Maleficent or something. So it was cool to see her and uh, something where she gets to do quite a bit, so. Doesn't that look like she could do it in a weekend? <laughs> that kind of stuff, she just hacks off on a Thursday through Saturday and calls it good on Sunday, and then the stunt woman comes in. That's kind of her operating system there. I saw it too, and you know, I could guess everything that was happening. The little boy who looks at the fire and says, it's a fire, is it a fire? Yeah, it's a fire, kid, and we're gonna run like hell to get through it, okay? <laughs> I'm on the same wavelength as Jared, I think, uh, when it comes to Those Who Wish Me Dead. I thought it was fine. Nowhere near the level of the uh, the other recent Taylor Sheridan films. I thought it was real pulpy, like the novelization you would pick up at a grocery store. Like very... Well, to the to that point, the I think it was in like a review from like IndieWire. They basically described it in, in a positive way of like being something straight that would have come out in like the mid '90s, and like it's dead on. And I, I'm more than okay with that of that kind of '90s action movie. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see more things like this where it is a, you know, a mid-tier budget level, you know, thing that just kind of comes out. They don't invest a a whole lot of money in producing it. It's got enough, you know, names to to get you into it, and you know, have that be what goes to HBO Max or 
you know, gets dumped on to Netflix or whatever when they're not promoting 10-year-old Liam Neeson movies and other weird, you know, procedurals and things like that, which again, I'm not knocking them. Those are great. <laughs> the only thing missing from it was Kevin Bacon. Yeah. He seems like the type of person who would have done this, right? Kevin Bacon with like a mustache and like uh, aviator glasses or something. He might be a good guy to begin with and then he turns on you. But yeah, it's it's typical. And so if you're looking for typical, that's what it is. It has the worst title ever, though. It, well, should it, have doesn't, been it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't fit into any anything in the movie, if I remember correctly. I mean, it just, it's just like... No. And you can't remember the title. It's one of those titles that you go, well, it's the Angelina Jolie thing. Uh, fire um, movie. The fire yeah, movie. Right. Didn't um, uh, Meryl Streep do something like this at one point? So maybe she's... She's following suit. She needs to do more indie films, though. And every couple of years, we need a fire movie, because I think the last one was only The Brave. So every couple of years, you get a fire movie. We need a fire movie to really make everybody have lung, uh, miners' lungs, and they're all coughing and hacking and worried about it. But it did point up one thing. Always wear a mask if there's a fire. There you go. See, we can learn things. <laughs> if anybody walks away from here with one lesson having been learned. Always wear a mask during a fire. Now we're going to jump into staff picks. So what we're looking at is it's been 10 years since the Cannes Film Festival of 2011. Eh, you know, I mean, Cannes Film happens every, every year. And this one specifically, Jared wanted to talk about a film that was released there. So we figured we'd take a little deeper look at there. Uh, we didn't Jared for this moment. And yeah. let me talk about this movie that really wasn't as good as Baby Driver, but there you go. <laughs> Jared has been, Jared's been wanting to talk about his movie for a long time. Uh, and this is the, the way that we're going to shoehorn it in there. Uh, so yeah, the 2011 Cannes Film Festival, Robert De Niro was the president of the jury. Uh, Michelle Gondry, headed up the short film competition, Bong Joon-ho, uh, who we all know nowadays uh, much better than we did in 2011. He was the jury, he was the head of the jury for the first time filmmaker camera d'Or prize. Uh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life won the Palme d'Or. Uh, and probably the less said the better about Woody Allen's return to form, uh, Midnight in Paris, which opened the festival. Won an Oscar for that too. For a screenplay, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I mean, I don't know, looking back, I mean, it's like Midnight in Paris is a fine movie, you know, completely, you know, created by someone who's been thoroughly revealed to be a horrible monster. But um, of the 20 something films that were in competition that year, we wanted to each pick one that would be worth revisiting or talking about for whatever reason. And so I'm sure Jared is uh, just about ready to go. I'm not going to waste any more time. There we go. I like the sound of that. But yeah, Jared, take it away with your pick. Basically, the first time uh, that I realized uh, the kind of sway that um, Ryan Gosling had over straight white college women, I was in a uh, dark, like nondescript uh, activity room on the main floor of like a student union building. And even after watching him slap Christina Hendricks around several times, and then cave a dude's head in 
and uh, drown the former beast of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, a lot of the people that were watching this movie with me were still uh, swooning for Ryan Gosling uh, playing an unnamed uh, wheelman who uh, haunts Los Angeles like a ghost. Um, I'm, of course, talking about Drive, which uh, debuted at Cannes in uh, May 2011. Um, and uh, a lot of the reports from then said it got some of the uh, largest applause of a festival that uh, included other movies from uh, like Chris was naming uh, Terrence Malick, uh, Lynn, Lynn Ramsey for her movie, We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is horrifying, but also definitely one of the best movies of the 2010s. Aging like a fine wine, just to interject. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, uh, Pedro Almodovar had a movie there, so did Lars von Trier and uh, Takashi Miike. Um, and the fondness for the movie uh, that uh, one review called uh, fully realized art house action. Um, it had enough love at Cannes that uh, Nicholas Winding Refn actually took home the best director prize, which is pretty impressive considering the uh, competition he was up against. Um, and for me, like even seeing it that one time in kind of a weird setting of a student activities, like, you know, uh, event at a uh, liberal arts college in Northeast Missouri was enough to like win me over and understand why it was getting all those plaudits. Um, the first time you hear any of the synth drops in the movie, um, it's when like Ryan Gosling's character lays his eyes on a getaway car, which is just like this absolute moment of pure coolness, which I love uh, in a movie. And then by the time the like biggest synth drop of the movie comes when the uh, neon pink credits like pull up it's really hard to argue about the you know style and aesthetic that's on display um and a thing i appreciate about that is even though there's you know a big emphasis on cool stuff in the movie and it is a very aesthetic uh heavy kind of movie um it definitely makes sure to like tip its cap to the movies that made it possible which the big one is the driver from uh 1978 which has ryan o'neill in it kind of playing a similar part um, and apparently at one point, uh, Gosling's character was going to be played by Hugh Jackman in an alternate timeline. I'm thankful that that didn't happen because that would have been, uh, bizarre. Um, but, uh, the character also kind of has some basis too. And, uh, the main character from Lay Samurai, which is a fantastic movie from the late sixties of this, like kind of loner dude who just like, uh, doesn't have a, uh, problem with, uh, using violence if he has to, but otherwise he would rather just kind of kick back and take it easy. But um, that guy walked around and uh, Clint Eastwood is the man for no name uh, or man with no name, which is kind of another thing with Gosling's character. Um, Gosling's character drives around instead of uh, walking or riding a horse. Um, and, you know, kind of going off of those uh, things that it's, you know, paying tribute to. I, I love this movie so much because it kind of plays with some pretty recognizable like archetypes and uh tropes and like subverts them too. like the first time in the movie that um, Ryan Gosling's character meets uh, Carrie Mulligan. It's not really a meet cute because they don't talk at all. Um, they just pass by each other in the garage of their apartment building and don't even really look at each other. They just kind of go in the opposite directions. One of them's taking out the trash or something, I think. Um, and another good subversion I thought was, um, I th I'm pretty sure we've talked about heat uh, on here before, but uh, you know, the one of the most famous scenes in heat is the diner scene um, where De Niro and uh, uh, Pacino finally meet. And there's a diner scene or two in, um, in drive and, you know, it's in LA also, but uh, they're all very mundane scenes and diners in drive. There's nothing that exciting about them at all, even though they're, you know, you would think from watching Heat or some of the other movies that are in this kind of vein, something big would happen or there'd be some kind of payoff. 
And that's not really the case. And then one of the biggest payoffs you expect in the whole movie um, when you think uh, Ryan Gosling's finally going to get uh, some much deserved revenge, like a Michael Myers level of revenge against um, Ron Perlman's character, instead of like, you know, brutalizing him, he basically just drowns him and you don't even see it up close, which is another, I think, really interesting um, subversion with the uh, movie. Um, and even with all of that, um, I think the thing that makes Drive uh, hold up so well, and it's what I love so much about it, is there's a lot of like really good um, pathos in the movie too. Like uh, Ryan Gosling's character is like pretty identifiably lonely in a way I think people would recognize. He lives by himself, especially the way people would recognize in the past year or so. He lives by himself. He doesn't really talk to anyone or hang out with anyone. He's basically like a gig economy worker because like he's doing like stunt. He kind of is because he's doing, uh, you know, stunt work and uh, uh, taking uh, criminal driving gigs when he can. Um, and to that loneliness, there's literally a point in the movie where there's a song lyric that says, uh, like, this light is not for those men lost in that black shadow. And that happens as he's like looking through the window of a pizza shop at people having fun. He's like on the outside looking in of people having a, uh, a good time. And so I think that kind of recognizable loneliness is something that makes the, the movie uh, interesting, too. And then it's also incredibly um, romantic. I was singing Real uh, Hero at the beginning of the, the pod, and that's probably one of the most romantic moments uh, in the movie when um, Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan's characters are riding along the L.A. River. Um, and when they get back, uh, Mulligan's young son uh, is asleep in like Ryan Gosling's arms as he carries him down the hallway. Um, it's kind of like a perfect day in the lives of people who don't know a lot of perfect days. And so, you know, I, I really appreciate all that um, kind of emotion to it too. Um, so between all of that and just the, the star-studded cast, um, the, uh, the cinematography, which is again, uh, delightful, uh, the music, which I listen to just on its own. Um, and I, I don't think if that music wasn't in that movie that we would have gotten so many subsequent movies and shows like Stranger Things that are so synth heavy. Like I really think Drive is responsible for a lot of that. Um, and that's a big reason why it still holds up even now is because now we like are so used to hearing that synth music, which obviously is indebted to like John Carpenter and stuff, but hadn't been around in the same way for a while. And so even now, like 10 years after the fact, I've seen this movie like several dozen times since it came out. I've had watch parties for it. Um, and at those watch parties, I had a bowl of like toothpicks because that's a thing with uh, Gosling's character in the movie. He always has a toothpick. Uh, anytime I like find that a friend of mine who likes movies hasn't seen it, I'll invite him over to watch it. Um, in college, I actually went so far as to write an essay for a religious studies class about Ryan Gosling's character as a uh, quasi-messianic figure. <laughs> that's... <laughs> oh boy. Garrett, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you. No, it's genuinely uh, my favorite movie of the 2010s, and it, it may well be one of my favorites of all time on days when I'm not thinking about, like, uh, Halloween or a movie from the 70s, uh, Spirit of the Beehive. Uh, I, I think two decades from now, I'll probably feel the same way, and Lord willing, I make it to, like, half a century from now. I'll probably be babbling incoherently about Drive in, like, a hospital or a, a old folks' home somewhere. Um, because I, I just think it's a, a perfect movie and that's why I wanted to talk about it because it's uh, 10 years old now and it uh, has aged like a fine wine. I don't have anything to add. Yeah, Drive is a great film and I love that it uh, managed to win over the audience at Cannes in such a clear 
way and then also has developed such an intense cult following. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a solid movie. It's one that Nicholas Windegreffen has yet to top. No, um, unfortunately. And, and might never. They um, probably served a lot of free liquor and a lot of hors d'oeuvres at that at that uh, screening. And then they said, now we're going to start voting. So who would you like to have for best director? And the system I, works is what you're saying, Bruce. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I can't, I can't stress enough. Another thing too, that like has helped us age so well is definitely the, the cast, which is just an embarrassment of riches. Like obviously, you know, Gosling's still a star. Brian Cranston's in it and is, is great in it. He's a very sad, sad character in it. Albert Brooks, who we've talked about before is not the, you know, he's a pretty choosy actor. And so him being in it, especially as a villain um, is just an absolute hoot to watch. And then the fact that Oscar Isaac was in this, even before like Llewellyn Davis or like well before Star Wars or, you know, Ex Machina or any of the things that got him a lot more uh, notice. The fact that he, he's in this too, along with like, you know, Ron Perlman and Carrie Mulligan also, it's it's pretty ridiculous. And it, I mean, I think it's one of the better ensemble casts too in a movie in the past 10 years, so. We'll let you have it. You can have it, but. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I still think Baby Driver just beats it up like crazy, but there you are. Disagree very intensely. Chris, what was your big pick from that year? My big pick from that year, I thought about the Lynn Ramsey movie. We need to talk about Kevin. Uh, And then I ended up going with This Must Be the Place, which I have only only recently actually seen for the first time. Um, And it's... I remember people talking about this movie. It's directed by Paolo Sorrentino, who most people, if you know the name, will probably associate him with The Young Pope on HBO, that series, uh, which is fantastic and over the top and (laughs) just ridiculous. And This Must Be the Place is sort of the same thing in in a weird way. It's Sean Penn basically as this Robert Smith of the Cure, uh, not not parody, sort of analog maybe, and going through, you know, midlife crisis with family and his, you know, career is not necessarily on the rocks, but it's certainly his creative output has stalled, I suppose. Uh, and then there's this whole plot that develops out of that with uh, with him, trying to hunt Nazis. Uh, And yeah, it is over the top, but also very grounded. And Sean Penn's performance in it is really wonderful. And yeah, Francis McDormand, uh, multiple Oscar winner Francis McDormand plays his wife, uh, who is just lovely and doting and yeah, seems like just the exact right person that uh, this Robert Smith character needs. And yeah, it's, it's a fantastic movie that I definitely think people have not thought about in a long time. And it's on HBO Max and give it a shot. I think it's it's really fantastic. Yeah, David Byrne from uh, Talking Heads is also uh, in that movie. As himself. Yes. This must be the place is a... Uh, a late period talking head song so all makes sense and how many oscars did that win oh none (laughs) did not win any is that my segue into talking about the one true film 
the one true film from the 2011 um, Cannes Film Festival. The artist, come on, the artist. It won Best Actor for Jean Dujardin, who also won the Oscar, and he won just about everything else that you could win for Best Actor. Um, and we know how Hollywood loves to kind of revisit its own. But this was an interesting thing before Mank became an interesting thing, um, because they filmed it all in color and then turned it to black and white. They did the ratio so that it looked like a silent film. They really made it as much as you possibly could so you felt like you were in that era. And again, it's one of those things, just like Singing in the Rain, where it's about making the transition from silence to sound and how his character really couldn't make the transition because he didn't have the right voice for it. Um, his girlfriend, who was just an extra in the film, played, played by uh, Berenice Bejo, I believe it is. Um, she becomes a big star. And then of course, who saves the whole film? Uggy, the dog, come on. The dog keeps him from dying. It's, I think, a great way of looking at Hollywood without being, um, aren't we great? It looks at kind of the, the darker side of Hollywood. And I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was a great film, even though, and I'm giving you this, when they make a list of the 10 worst um, films ever nominated or winning best picture prizes, it's on it. Because people, for some reason, don't like this film. And when you look at some of the things it was up against that year for best picture, it fits. It fits. Um, but it is one. Go back and see it again, because I do think it is very touching. And it pays tribute to uh, Hollywood in a way that you wouldn't think foreign uh, directors would. Um, because a lot of French directors want to think that they invented the, uh, the form and they're the ones who really are the best filmmakers. And here they're looking back at Hollywood as really, you know what, this is where the place where it really got its magic going. Um, so I'm a big artist fan and it did win, I believe, five Oscars, including Best Actor, Best Director, Best Picture. And if they had one for Best Dog, it would have won Best Dog too. ASPCA awards is that the uh I'm sure but Uggy's dead now so it doesn't matter I think the movie is is fine I think it's you know it's good but it was also up against a pretty weak year all of those ones during that period they had weak films um the King's Speech come on you know there are a lot of ones that won during that period where you go mm, I'm not so sure when I say and I presume when you as well say, you know, a weak year. I mean, I'm looking, I mean, Moneyball is one of my favorite films. I, I love Moneyball so much. I like it too, yeah. But it's but it's also, it's, it's not a film that is going to win Best Picture. Woody Allen, I'm honestly kind of surprised they didn't give it to him from Midnight in Paris for all of the, the hullabaloo there. We've got uh, Hugo, the Martin Scorsese film that everyone- Hugo was good. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's another movie that has been thoroughly memory-hold though. <laughs> Like it has disappeared. People do not think about that film. The Descendants, that was a good one. That was a great one. But Alexander Payne is another guy who the odds of him getting Oscars, uh, not great. Um, I just don't, yeah. And Terrence Malick is way too artsy for, for the Oscars, despite the fact that the artist is <laughs> artsy in a, in a completely different more populist way i suppose but in in those years they had to have a certain kind of quality and then they twisted it a little bit and that quality is bad in the case of the artist <laughs> that's, it, that's well, the quality they had to have 
they loved blockbusters. They loved things that were big. They loved things that kind of paid tribute to themselves. And I think they were really enamored with this where they go, you know, they did a silent film in a talky era. That's pretty brave and daring. And so, you know, I can see where they, in a black and white film, come on. I am gonna throw out there that if anyone remembers the artist and really liked it, what they should do is also go back and watch the better films, I think, that are by the same director and also starred Jean Jourdain, uh, OSS 117. There are two films that are basically these, you know, James Bond send-ups that are perfect. They are so good and so funny and not at all in the same way that the artist is doing its thing. I would hope that I would hope that the director would have movies better than the artist because I mean, if he had ones that were worse than uh, Jesus. Now, Jared, be nice, play nice. Um, you know, what's strange though is that uh, Jean Dujardin, you haven't seen him that much. I mean, he was in a couple of things that were big Hollywood films, but then he went back to his old wheelhouse. And I would have thought he could have had a huge career if he really wanted it in Hollywood. Maybe he didn't want it. I mean, he's got a real big leading man energy to him yeah and and he he has so much charisma and and he and he's funny and you know physical comedy and i mean yeah you know one who's kind of in that same field demian bashir who i think did lean in and took all the work he could get and now you see him in things where you go mm, i wish you hadn't done that because he was on some bad tv show and he just did the land with um robin wright and you think you don't need to do this. You're really good. You don't have to just be drug dealers and whatever. Um, so I think sometimes there, there is a, a downside to taking that Hollywood money and doing everything. I don't know. But anyway, I see him in the same category of the, uh, an actor who has an opportunity, but maybe he decided he didn't need that. The fartest. Jared, did you really see the film or were you- I did. And of 2011 movies, I would rather go rewatch Jack and Jill than The Artist. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> Maybe you just you hadn't refined your palate by that time. Wash it down with a Dunkachino? Is that the... Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough. Moving on. Next. Me a, let me give you a build up, okay? And now, with the news, here's Jared. All right, there's not going to be any uh, flourishes to this. I'm not going to like sugarcoat anything. Uh, busy week, plenty of stuff to talk about. We've got uh, another Marvel uh, trailer for another Marvel movie that's going to be another origin story, this time with some like gods or supernatural powers of some kind. And that's. Uh, and did, it, uh, did it not give credit to the director? Wasn't that the big thing? Yeah, which, I mean, none of those movies do, so I don't know why people were all of a sudden surprised that, like, Eternals was going to be the first one that said, you know, a movie by, you know, Chloe Zhao, even if she did just win at the Academy Awards. That's not how these blockbusters ever work. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the first thing was, you know, the uh, big Eternals trailer came out, and that's coming out this year still, if I'm correct, right? Or is it next year? I think it's coming out in November, I want to say, or somewhere around there. 
pretty loaded cast. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry uh, from you know Atlanta and uh, Feel Straight Could Talk and you know a million other great films uh, is in it. Kumail Nanjani is in it. That was the movie that he got uh, all swole for that people were. He still is. Uh, that people were posting about last year on Twitter. Uh, Kit Harrington is in it. Salma Hayek is in it. Um, really loaded uh, cast. And uh, people seem to be excited about this one because it's uh, definitely one of the more talented directors they've had for a Marvel movie, right? I mean, Chloe Zhao, who would be second on that? Taika Waititi, maybe? I think coming in, yeah. So, yeah, th- there's, there's reason to be excited, but even though I, I, I think this one might be one of the weirder Marvel movies and I appreciate them doing weirder stuff, it's still hard for me to get excited for any one Marvel yeah. movie at this point. Do you know anything about the actual history of the Eternals? A little bit. They're basically like God-level beings in like uh, the Marvel universe that kind of just like watch over, you know, everything in the universe to make sure you know, everything, nothing gets too out of whack, basically. And they'll intervene sometimes when uh, stuff just gets too out of hand. So, do they have powers? Yeah. Like, yeah, they do. They have, they have, like, different godlike powers, kind of. So, so it would be, like, Storm and the X-Men and Cyclops, kind of like more, that? A little more powerful than that. They've been around, you know, since, like, the beginning of time, more or less. So, yeah. So these are kind of Thor level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, closer to... Closer to that, even more so than that. I yeah, mean, these are sort of like like the physical embodiment of ideas in a way, um, pretty much within the the Marvel universe. And yeah, this is definitely one of the bigger things that they've I think pulled out of the the crazy cosmological, you know, weird Marvel seventies stuff. Yeah, basically, this is from the period of time when, like, all the people working at Marvel were doing a lot of acid and just, like, walking around New York City and coming up with ideas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. The Eternals, I think, is going to be one of the biggest asks of the Marvel fandom. I think it goes, it friends up. But I, I didn't know anything really about Guardians of the Galaxy when I went into that film and fell in love with it immediately. And that's another one of the examples of, I think one of the earliest examples of a Marvel film actually exhibiting some of the auteur flourishes of its director. Um, and I am Groot. So I'm, I'm excited for it. I think the teaser looked good and now I'm just gonna kind of avoid it up until it comes out. And I guess probably the biggest news, I know Jared, you wanna talk about this, uh, the biggest, Industry news, I suppose, is that Amazon has agreed to buy MGM for what is it like nine billion with a B dollars, I believe, which is, I mean, chump change to Amazon more or less. Yeah, that's that's like coins in Jeff Bezos's couch somewhere. Um, yeah, and um, they've, I mean, they've kind of been, you know, ramping up. Amazon has for a while now with like their movie selection. Obviously, they've been doing more and more you know, Amazon Prime and uh, Amazon Studio releases and, you know, premiering more stuff on Prime, like Coming to America 2 debuted on Prime uh, without remorse. The Michael B. Jordan, uh, Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy movie premiered on uh, Prime. And this just kind of feels like the uh, the next step. And I know a lot of people are worried about it. And I kind of am too, just of like, it's just, you know, another studio getting bought up and eventually it feels like we're just going to end up with like three studios and it's going to be Netflix, Amazon, and uh, Disney. What happened to, you know, didn't HBO max have a lot of those MGM shows? Didn't, weren't they? Uh, 
HBO, uh, it's, it's Warner's. Warner Brothers is right. And HBO. Warner's owned a lot of those things at one point. They had Wizard of Oz and they had um, Gone with the Wind because they were having to kind of fight back against all of that stuff. So do those films not go with this? Well, apparently, because I've seen reporting on that in particular that like, yeah, Gone with the Wind and the Wizard of Oz are likely not going to be part of the Amazon MGM deal because of like all the different times MGM is like, you know, done mergers and acquisitions and stuff with its library. So those might not be making it in, which is then kind of another thing that we've you know talked about before of like how many of these like, you know, classic movies that were made before, like, I mean, with Netflix, anything before like 1980 just doesn't exist. Is that going to be a problem, you know, with other streaming platforms in the future as they gobble up more and more of these studios? Like how many of those older movies are going to have that prominent of a part on these like streaming platforms? So is it the crappy ones that uh, like Elvis made? Because he made a lot of MGM musicals. I bet they're all going to be on this thing. Fingers crossed. We can only hope that uh, Clambake uh, is uh, prominently featured on uh, Amazon. <laughs> This month, with your packages, will be delivered Blue Hawaii. One of the more immediate things, I guess, is the fact that they are maybe going to own, I guess, as part of it, all of the James Bond films as well. Yeah, that, that it feels like that was like, as much as anything, the reason for buying it is to get the James Bond movies, because obviously those still do um, buku bucks. I can't remember. I know Skyfall got close to a billion dollars box office if it didn't get over that. And um, well. How did they split? Some of those are United Artist films. Yeah, it'll, I'm sure they they still have a lot they're going to have to. Uh, a lot uh, of a lot, a lot of eyes to dot and T's to cross, and you know, yeah. figuring out all the where you know various joint productions or if it was a joint production with a studio that's since like <laughs> you know gone bankrupt or whatever. Like, where does that fall in there? And I don't know. Not that I mean, Amazon has never really seemingly had too much of a problem with streaming things that are already in kind of a dubious copyright zone <laughs> all of the the weird you know exploitation flicks that they've got up <laughs> i don't know where that <laughs> what's going on with that i i do wonder like it feels like it's only a matter of time um you know that there's going to be like some kind of james bond series on like prime now that uh they're gonna be getting uh some of the MGM stuff. So I'm sure we'll see a James Bond series with like a new James Bond and then also maybe James Bond movies too. So if they can actually digitize the archive and make it available for streaming through Prime, awesome. And, you know, also crossovers. Think of that. Yeah. Mrs. Maisel, think of what she can do. Oh boy. <laughs> She'll be going with Elvis. You wait. She'll be opening for Elvis in Vegas. That'll be the next I mean, year's theme. And then they'll have somebody like um, uh, one of the Jonas Brothers will play Elvis. The bonus Jonas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Frankie. Yeah. The last little chunk that we got here is, uh, I don't know, Jared, you want to you wanna introduce this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so this I is a horror thing? Well, no. So I think it was more than a week ago now, or maybe about a week or so ago. There was a Zack Snyder uh, interview that came out with, you know, Army of the Dead uh, being out now, um, and which I still haven't seen and I need to. But um, one of the things in the interview he got into was the interviewer asked him, um, 
you know, could he ever see himself doing an indie movie again, which I don't even know what an indie movie to him would be, but he was kind of throwing out, you know, some ideas of, you know, some stuff that might be, uh, he might do with like a smaller budget, smaller cast, you know, and just one location or two. And um, one of the things he threw out was um, doing almost like his take on the book Blood Meridian by uh, Cormac McCarthy, which favorite book of mine and also notoriously uh, unadaptable because even by Cormac McCarthy standards, it is an incredibly violent um, and very like philosophical and very strange book. They've tried to adapt it before and it's not gotten anywhere. And so the idea of the guy that did the Justice League movie in 300 trying to adapt a, a Cormac McCarthy book into a movie uh, just set my uh, head absolutely spinning and wishing that thing into uh, reality. And so um, it was kind of fun then to think about um, other directors who would do a good job with other, you know, classic works of uh, literature from like the, the 20th century. And I know Chris threw one out of uh, someone doing a version of uh, William Golding, Florida the Flies. I was thinking specifically about Zack Snyder. Uh-huh. And I think I think Zack Snyder's adaptation of Lord of the Flies would be really good. Like, I mean, Snyder is not someone that I, I think of when I think of subtlety. And there's not a lot that's really subtle about Lord of the Flies. I mean, it's kind of it's up there, you know, with like Animal Farm, where all of the, the themes and, you know, overarching metaphors are pretty, pretty blunt. So yeah, one, of the, one of the kids will stand on the rock and go. Piggy, prepare to die. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think of Zack Snyder as having not, not a childish approach, but a very, you know, childlike kind of energy, um, you know, to the stuff that he does in, in a way. And I, yeah, I think Lord of the Flies would be something where, I don't want to say like it's a movie he couldn't mess up, but I would be really interested to see what he brought to Lord of the Flies. So, so that's, that's, that's my contribution to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce, any other, let's say a, a book and a director pairing you'd like to see. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how a lot of really good books that you just really love have never even got a tumble. Um, and I've always wanted to see Cavalier and Clay turn into something. And, um, you know, that would be one of those guys could take on that, but I don't know. I think some of them they're too they're afraid of. They just really don't want to do them. And so they back away from great literature that could be a, a really cool movie because it's like, oh, I don't know. You know, we got to put a lot in that Cruella thing. It was we really had to back it up a little bit here. And I don't know, this would be a three or four hour long movie if we do some of those ones that are books. So, you know, I think they're scared of it. You mentioned Cavalier and Clay, which is a fantastic novel, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Chabon, uh, incredible book. That's one, and it's in that kind of realm of things that if it's going to be adapted, I think would turn into a, you know, 10 or 12 part series on HBO or, um, you know, Amazon. I mean, Amazon obviously is redoing the whole Lord of the Rings stuff now and sinking a ton of money into that. HBO just recently, or no, Amazon also, you know, released the 10 hour, you know, Barry Jenkins 
version of Underground Railroad written by Colson Whitehead, which is, again, that is phenomenal. I'm, I have not finished it. I'm kind of, I don't want to say savoring it, but um, I mean, that is one where there is so much to digest and Cavalier and Clay could be along the same lines, especially in the, given the way that we interact with comic books now and superheroes and all of those tropes, I think it, it could be a, a really good film, but it seems like right now that is an example of something that would get that much more room if it's broken down into a series and, and really, you know, have somebody throw money at it. But, Come on, HBO. Yeah. But that, that's part of, we've, we've talked about this a lot in the past where, you know, is something like underground railroad, would that be a 10 hour movie or, um, what was the, uh, the small axe series that Amazon put yeah, out last the, year? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, Steve McQueen did, yeah. And then you see ones where they stretch it that could have been a good two-hour movie. They didn't need to have seven parts, you know? Yeah. But well, I'm thinking see- of all of the, um, the the Hobbit films, you know, that whole trilogy, which that did not need to be, you know, 84 hours long and, you know, shot in such an insane, <laughs> you know, frame rate and whatever else. Um, so, yeah, could go the other way where it's like it doesn't need to be a series it just needs to be a movie one movie and right and sometimes it's good to cut things you know it's when you look back at those old old films they were 90 minutes or less what happened to the 90 minute film it just doesn't exist anymore well jared did you actually answer the um the adaptation question i mean blood meridian would be up there which is why i was even interested in this in the first place one other one um it's not quite unlike the classics of the specific book isn't quite on the level of like a classic but the writer definitely is and that's um there's this book i read at the beginning of the year called uh life for sale by uh yukio mishima uh the famous uh japanese um writer and it would be a perfect kind of movie for like the cohen's or someone else with a little bit of that kind of like um you know screwball sensibility to them when they wanted to play it because it's basically about this guy who um, tries to kill himself and survives. And like, after he survives, he basically decides to put his entire life up for sale for people to like do whatever they want. So like, he'll, you know, have sex with people that want him to, he'll like go kill someone for people that want him to. And because he just puts his entire life up for sale, eventually he gets like embroiled in this whole web of uh, conspiracy with like vampires and uh, secret agencies and stuff. So it'd be a really fun kind of shaggy dog sort of thing for someone to try to adapt. I'm a huge fan of the Paul Schrader film, Mishima. And yeah, that sounds fascinating. I want to read that now. There you go. Book recommendation for the week. We're going all over the map, aren't we? Nobody's going to keep Baby Driver in the corner, let me tell you. Baby <laughs> Driver. Gosh. I need to rewatch that, I guess. The music is good. The music is good. Oh, the music's great. It's a killer soundtrack. Hold on, though. You complained that there were too many songs in Cruella, Bruce. There's a lot of songs in Baby Driver. There are, but it makes sense. It's like they're listening to the radio. But Cruella, you go watch that thing. You'll say, there are too many songs. I think there are too many songs. Are they good songs? Oh, there are things you absolutely recognize them. I wish I could sing a few of them, but I don't want to have rights issues. But no, it's, um, uh, I mean, it's all like uh, like 70s, uh, like UK punk before. stuff, right? It isn't all necessarily 70s. There's some Dor- Doris Day in there, and yeah. Five to One by uh, uh, The Doors looks like that's in the soundtrack. One to Five. 
No one here gets out alive. Yeah, I think we're, hmm. So there we are. He was the Lizard King. <laughs> Bruce, you want to take us out with our, our favorite saying here? I want you to really go back to the theaters. This is your weekend to go back to the theaters. It's safe. You can go back and see something good at the movies because you will be so thrilled when you get that experience one more time. You'll go, my God, I know what I've been missing this whole year. And yeah, the floor is sticky. Yeah, the food is not all that good, but it's a communal experience where you really feel like you're part of something. And to, and to that point, Bruce, when I went to see Spiral on Friday, uh, in front of me uh, buying a ticket was a, a father and son. Um, the son was definitely not old enough to see uh, Spiral, but uh, you know, you, they get to have a family bonding moment over a movie where multiple people get tortured to death. And you can only have that if you actually go to the theaters. <laughs> You know, my dad was the one who always went to the movies with me. He loved going to the movies. We would go two or three times a week. And yesterday would have been his 100th birthday. And his goal was always to reach 100. He said, I want to live to be 100 years old. And in dad's honor, I'm going to go to the movies. My dad definitely took me to see movies that my mom didn't want me to see. Um, and... Uh, yeah, from Waterworld to Jurassic Park and even Forrest Gump for reasons that I still don't really quite understand, but neither here nor there. So see something good. Go see something good in the theater. This weekend, you've got an extra day. Blockbuster season kicking off. Well, thank you guys so much. Perfect. Excellent. All right, gang, have fun. So that is the episode. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream any movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact us. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you enjoyed the show and are taking good care of yourself out there. As always, thank you so much for listening.